The Mind of Christ is the title of our series. Our desire and our design is to be like Jesus Christ. Now, maybe our desire isn't always there like it should be, but that is our goal, is to have that desire to be like Jesus Christ. We were literally made for this. We were made in the image of God to be like God the Son. Now, in being like Him, I'm not suggesting that we're going to have His eternal power or His omniscience or, or something like that. Don't, don't stretch that farther than, than the Scripture does. But God has designed us to be like Christ, to be holy, to be loving, to be compassionate, and so on and so forth as we looked at most recently, to be humble. That's not an easy one for us, is it? Anytime we do something that goes well, immediately there's that flicker of the flame of pride in our hearts, isn't there? Well, Paul has written this book to encourage the church and instruct us how to live like Christ. Our theme passage was actually last week's Sermon. So let's say our theme passage together. We'll say uh, verses 5 through 7, which we've been working on memorizing. How many of you have it memorized? Some of you do. Very good. I kind of do, but also when I'm in front of people, I never have anything memorized. So I'm going to read it. Uh, but say it along with me if you would. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And we finished out that passage with verse 8 as well. I'll read that for you. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." You recall we talked about the, the significance of Jesus dying, not just dying, but dying a, a, a martyr's death, dying a cruel crucifixion because of us. That's how humble Jesus made himself. The, the word actually is humiliate, isn't it? He humiliated himself to become sin for us. We talked about last week how this uh, this larger passage, verses 5 through 11, is actually an ancient hymn, a hymn from the first century that the church was already singing uh, in, in the early days of the church, which, which tells us that the church had a very robust theology of Jesus Christ, that they were singing uh, rich theological hymns like this. The, the first half of the hymn, Jesus willingly, <clears throat> excuse me, that frog has been in there all morning. I've been trying to get it out. It'll probably come out after lunch. Uh, in the first half of this hymn, we see how Jesus willingly and humbly emptied himself. And now in the second half of the hymn, we see how God exalts the Son. So from empty to exalted. So read along with me, if you would, our passage for this morning, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Father, there are some very profound truths in this brief passage. Help us to capture them not just in our minds, but in our hearts. That we would go away knowing our Savior more. Keeping him at the forefront of our minds. Not just, not just when we come to church, but all the time. So we ask for your blessing on your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever experienced something that was just the best? And you tried to share it with someone, and you tried to explain it, and words just weren't working. You said best too many times. You tried to make a superlative of best by saying bestest, and most bestest, and it was the greatestest thing ever. Maybe you're better with words than I am. Uh, but sometimes it's hard to express clearly to someone how good something is. For instance, uh, you can hear my voice is not quite right. My voice is not quite right this morning because I was at our men's retreat this weekend. Men's Revive is our annual men's retreat up at uh, Ventura, Iowa on Clear Lake. And uh, I had the opportunity to lead music. And there were about 350 men in that auditorium. If you've been there, it's an octagonal-shaped auditorium, so it has that kind of a cone-shaped ceiling, which makes the sound just resonate. And to hear those men singing at the top of their lungs, uh, and it's something that we, we just don't do in our own church. Why? Because we feel like we'll stick out. There's not enough of us sometimes to, to feel like we can sing out as much as we can, but man, this weekend I sang out. I'm paying for it a little bit right now, okay? Uh, to express to you what it was like to be there, I, I really can't find the words to do it. I could tell you how just watching the men, because being up front and seeing all the men and, and their faces and, and how they would uh, belt out these hymns of the faith, these great songs of theology, of worship. Uh, ben Hartwig, most of you don't know him, but some of you do. Man, if you ever get a chance to watch him sing, and he was so into it, and there is no way that I can thoroughly describe and completely express to you what it was like unless you were there. And even if you were there, if you weren't in the front, you probably didn't get quite the same experience either. Why? Because there are some things that are just so fantastic that it's hard to describe. Another illustration came to mind. There was a time uh, I was working as a land surveyor. And so this was when I was in Texas. So it's not like it was uh, nice, beautiful weather all the time. It was ridiculously hot. And one of those ridiculously hot days, uh, we'd start uh, before sunup uh, and gather together. And then we'd go off to the first uh, house that we had to survey so that by the time we had enough daylight, we could start. And then we'd go... Uh, that day we were going through sundown. Well, we actually didn't get finished that day because uh, the partner that I was with got stung by a bee, and he was very allergic. Uh, he uh, came up to me, uh, and all of a sudden his neck was completely swollen. Like, oh no, this is trouble. Uh, so I spent the rest of the day with him in the ER. Uh, he was fine eventually, thankfully. Uh, so that wasn't the end of that story. But I was very hungry because we skipped lunch because he got stung by a bee and then spent the rest of the day with him 
And so I'm driving home. I know Amanda's at work. There's, um, that she won't have food ready, and I don't feel like making anything. So I stopped at Sonic. How many of you have been to a Sonic? It's not the greatest restaurant in the world, but it's pretty good, okay? I stopped there, and I had a chicken sandwich, a crispy chicken sandwich. I don't normally order those, but I, I got that that night because it looked good because I knew it had tomatoes on it. I knew that'd be that little extra juice in the sandwich, and that would taste so good. I'm telling you, to this day, that was the best chicken sandwich I have ever eaten. I go to Chick-fil-A a lot. My kids are looking at me like, are you crazy? Here's the thing. I'd been back to that Sonic several times afterwards and ordered the exact same thing, and it never tasted as good. Why is it? For two reasons. First of all, it was late enough at night that they had to make it fresh. And second of all, I was really hungry. And so I couldn't duplicate that even within myself, much less get you to experience that same great sandwich. What Paul is trying to do here is get us to really understand Jesus. That we would really understand uh, the greatness of who our Savior is and then in turn respond in worship from our hearts to him. Our big idea this morning is that all will authentically worship Jesus. It's a pretty bold statement. Because I'm not sure that everyone even in this room has worshipped at all this morning. Now, I'm not saying that to slam anyone. I'm just saying I can't see into your hearts. Maybe you were singing out at the top of your lungs and had the appearance of worshipping Jesus through song. And maybe you were following along carefully as the scripture was read and you had the appearance of worshiping Jesus through the word of God. And maybe you're looking right at me right now and you have the appearance of, of worshiping Jesus through the preaching of God's word. But you can do all those things and not be worshiping Jesus. Because that's a heart issue. So in making the statement that all will worship Jesus, it's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Let's see how Scripture lays that out. First of all, we see in verse 9 that Jesus is exalted by the Father. Therefore, God, God the Father, has highly exalted him. Uh, that's a, a superlative there, uh, a super exaltation. Uh, and he explains it. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. First word, Therefore. And you know the exercise. If you see a therefore or a wherefore, look and see what it's there for. That's not just a gimmick or a catchphrase. That's really how we study the Bible. Look, why is it there? Well, it's the previous passage, isn't it? Because Jesus has humbled himself. He left the throne of glory, left his high position with God the Father, humbling himself and becoming fully man. And he didn't just plop on the earth as a full-grown man, did he? He became a little helpless baby. Cared for by his mother Mary and his adopted father Joseph. He humbled himself. He grew up. He suffered many things like we do. He suffered physical pain. He suffered emotional pain. Uh, as we read through the scriptures at the crucifixion of Jesus, we see Mary around, but we don't see Joseph, the uh, 
implication is that Joseph had died. He had suffered the loss of loved ones. He had suffered the loss of rejection. Uh, All throughout Jesus' life, his siblings did not believe that he was truly the Messiah. It wasn't until after his death that some of them did believe. Perhaps all of them, we don't know. But we know at least one did, his brother James. Therefore, because Christ has humbled himself and suffered death, suffered the crucifixion on our behalf, he has now become the, the complete Messiah. He was always the Messiah, but he was the Messiah in waiting, as it were. Once he had offered himself as that sacrifice, he is now fully the Messiah, having paid for sins. Because of that, therefore, connects today's passage in a causative way to last week's passage. Because Jesus emptied himself, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Again, keeping in mind that this self-emptying that Jesus did was never a reduction in his deity. He was always fully God. For the length of his earthly life, Jesus veiled his heavenly glory, except for what we read Wednesday night. We read the uh, time when Jesus took three of his disciples up on the mountain and unveiled his glory just for a moment for them. But for almost all of his earthly life, he veiled his heavenly glory. He voluntarily stopped using some of his divine rights, but he was still fully God. So here in verse 9, God highly exalting Jesus is not some sort of restoration of deity. He never lost his deity. He never gave up his deity. He always knew everything. Found it fascinating as Jesus was calling his disciples. Um, he was uh, trying to let them know that uh, that he, who he was and, and that he was calling them to, to be his follower. And, and one of them was a little skeptical, and he just said, "You know, I saw what you were doing under the tree." We don't actually know what he was doing under the tree, but that disciple knew, and because Jesus is God, he knew all things, and that's what caused caused the disciple to go, "Okay." I'll follow you. Jesus was always fully divine, but now his role as Savior has been accomplished. The prophecies of the Messiah saving his people has been fulfilled. His work as priest sacrificing himself is now complete. So here's how Paul describes Christ's exaltation by the Father in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. He exercised, he, God, exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. The right hand is symbolic for the highest honor. And that's where our Savior is. Do you remember studying the book of Hebrews? Some of you weren't here for that. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, we read these verses. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever 
those who are sanctified. Jesus, with his one offering. In, in Hebrews, this was a comparison to the other priests who would have to continually offer sacrifices for sins. But Jesus offered his perfect sacrifice once for all, sanctifying those who believe forever. Not till they mess up again. No, there's no losing your salvation. They're sanctified forever. And now he is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus' exaltation is unsurpassed in rank and eternal in time. And both of those are important. Jesus' exaltation, his high status, is unsurpassed in rank. There is no one ever who will rank higher than Jesus. And there is no time that will pass that will cause his rank to expire. Queen Elizabeth has been Queen of England and the various commonwealths of Great Britain for 70 years. It's incredible. But her reign will not be forever. I can't use our own country for that example because we only get four or eight years anyway. Jesus' exaltation is unsurpassed in rank and eternal in time. So therefore, the next phrase in this verse is only logical, that, that he has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Since Jesus is exalted above all others, it makes sense that his name is as well. And what name is that? Well, verse 11, Lord. No one bears a title of greater importance than the Lord Jesus. No CEO chief executive officer, no president, no king, no emperor, no lord, prime minister, or whatever other titles monarchs get. Jesus bears a title of lord of all. Jesus is lord of all, but not everyone sees him as such. There's coming a day when they will. Verse 10, they will be revered by all people. Jesus will be revered by all people. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The result of Jesus' humiliation, that humbling from the previous passage, was his exaltation by God. An exaltation so great that all sentient beings will recognize and confess that it is true, Jesus is Lord. Everyone will bow the knee. Isaiah prophesied this. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 23 and 24. We read these words. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone out from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said about me, righteousness and strength are found only in the Lord. All who are enraged against him will come to him and be put to shame. It was prophesied centuries before. It is yet to be fulfilled. Prophesied centuries before Jesus was on earth, it is yet to be fulfilled. Has every knee bowed and every tongue confessed that Jesus is Lord? No. 
but it was prophesied. It's repeated here in the book of Philippians. Paul gives us a clearer picture of who exactly will bow the knee. It's not just everyone who believes in him. Look what it says. Everyone above the earth, on the earth, under the earth. So everyone in the heavenly realm, that would be all spirit beings, all angels. Everyone in the human realm, on earth, every person will bow the knee. And even everyone in Satan's realm will bow the knee to Jesus. Don't let that little word should throw you off. I read for you, so at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Paul is not saying that all should bow, but implying some will not. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, that word should is provided by the translators to, uh, to make it not so clunky, because the word should isn't there in the Greek. Uh, what's there in the Greek is this, uh, this tense that we don't have, this verb tense that we don't have in English, so it's kind of hard to translate. Uh, it, it, it's not a past tense, it's not a future tense, it's not even a present tense, it's called the aorist tense, and you can look that up if you want, A-O-R-I-S-T. We just don't have it in English, and so to make it somewhat sensible, they put the word should in there. Maybe in your Bible it says will. Uh, again, that, that helps us understand it because uh, just to say every knee bow, kind of awkward. Uh, it works for, for tongue confess. We're going to get to that. Every tongue confess. That's the same tense there. Uh, but don't let that word should toss you. It's not that every knee should. Yes, every knee should bow. No, every knee is going to bow. Every person who has ever lived, every person who has ever lived. Think through history. There are some nasty people that you know were not believers in Jesus Christ. I'm thinking Hitler, Stalin. Every angel of every rank, every demon, including the lead, Satan himself, will bow the knee to Jesus. The name Jesus, which is so often used as a swear word, and even believers use his name so lightly or forms of it, the mere mention of Jesus and all knees will bow. School started this past week, and so students had their first days of class. I asked my children after their first day of class, how was it? And the answer was pretty much the same, boring, didn't do a whole lot. That's pretty common for first days. Uh, they are more or less forgettable. I do remember my first day of PE, however, in high school. Yes, I know that was a while ago, leave me alone. Mr. Van Horn had been a wrestler in his prime. His body showed that he was no longer in his prime, yet you were certain that he could take anyone that challenged him. He was our PE teacher. On the first day of class, Mr. Van Horn made this statement, you will not say the name Jesus, Lord, or God in this class unless you are worshiping him. 
and we went about our business. And he wasn't, he wasn't stern and crazy about it, but, uh, you know, the school had a rule about not swearing, and he laid out the expectations for class, and along with not swearing, we were to not use the name Jesus, Lord, or God, unless we were worshiping. That was great. He was a good Christian man, possibly still is, I don't know. Um, of all the things to be forgettable on a first day of class, that was not one of them. Why? Because Jesus is worthy of our worship. We worship so many things that aren't worthy. We were at, I told you we were at the men's retreat, but there was a football game going on yesterday and there were some that just had to keep track. How'd Nebraska do? Never mind. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that these men were worshiping football. They weren't. But it's really easy to worship football, isn't it? Or, or, or some other sport. Or really any sport that our children or our grandchildren are a part of. It's very, very easy to set that as where our heart's affection is rather than worshiping our Lord Jesus. Jesus will be revered by all people. In verse 11, Jesus will be surrendered to by all people. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In saying that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that is an, an act of submission, saying that you are my ruler. Okay? There are far too many people, uh, far too many believers who don't see Jesus as their ruler. They don't think that the commands of Jesus really apply to them. Oh yeah, that's probably a good thing to try, that to aspire to not tell a lie or to not take things or to whatever, whatever sin we're going to talk about. But it's okay if I don't because Jesus paid for my sin. No, Jesus is your ruler. He is your Lord. Which means we must obey him. And scripture is clear. Obeying him is actually easier than disobeying. It doesn't feel like it in the time. But the pain and struggle that comes from disobeying God is definitely a harder road than obeying God. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. All, each and every one will bow in reverence to Jesus and all will state their confession. A confession is their belief, what they know to be true, that Jesus is is Lord, that Jesus is the supreme ruler of all, including themselves. Every tongue confessing is not just people speaking what others are saying, repeating what others are saying. Uh, confessing is proclaiming what we actually believe in our hearts. Every tongue confessing is every mind knowing and being convinced of the reality of Jesus and his lordship. I've been meditating on these verses over the last few weeks. And, I don't know, maybe six weeks ago, came to the realization of the implication of this verse. This verse is saying that 
every unsaved person that you know will confess Jesus as Lord. They will. The issue is, will they do it before they see him face to face? Because once they see him face to face, it's too late. That will no longer be saving confession. Right? Following what I'm saying? Everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. So why wouldn't we share that with them now? This bowing and confessing that every unsaved person will do will be genuine. It will be uncoerced. No arms will be twisted because everyone will see Jesus as he really is and they will be convinced of his deity and his lordship. So they will bow the knee and they will say, Jesus is Lord. But these verses are not teaching some sort of universal salvation. They will not be confessing that Jesus is their Savior because he will not be their Savior. Because they live their life never confessing that Jesus is Lord, never repenting, turning away from their sin and receiving Jesus as their Savior. In this moment, Jesus will not be their Savior for the unsaved, for those who have never turned to Christ. They will bow the knee, they will call him Lord, but he will not be their Savior, he will be their judge. Hebrews 9.27 And just as is, it is appointed for people to die once, after this, the judgment. So in the most basic of senses, or meanings is what I mean by that, in the most basic of meanings, all will worship. Everyone. Their understanding of the true Christ will prompt them to bow in reverence. Their knowledge of the true Christ will prompt their statement of confession. They will declare by both their posture and their proclamation that Jesus is is Lord. They will bow and they will confess. The redeemed will do this in love and gratitude, knowing that <clears throat> knowing that this is our Savior who sacrificed all so that we might be with him forever, so that we might have God as the center of our universe forever. But the lost will do this they will bow and confess, not out of love, but out of a knowing sense of despair. They will know the truth. They will also know that it was too late. There will be no connection to Jesus. They will know no love and no All that leaves is despair. All will worship Jesus. Look at that last phrase of verse 11. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is glorified 
when the Son is glorified. God is exalted when the Son is exalted by His own, by us, His children. And when... He is exalted even when those who are confessing his name don't suitably recognize who he is. What I mean by that is even when unsaved people say it, that's still an exaltation of Jesus Christ. Let me clarify and personalize this whole thing just a bit. I have a friend, Matt, who shows no fruit of redemption in his life. He will one day stand before Jesus. He will one day kneel before Jesus and call him Lord. Why would I not share with Matt that he can call him Lord now and receive eternal life? Now, he might not. And, and your unsaved friends and relatives and coworkers and classmates, why not invite them to bow to Jesus and confess that he is Lord now before it's too late? So what if they say no to you today? They might. And they might continue saying no to you. But they will say yes one day. And if it's on this side, if it's on this side of the grave, this side of Jesus' coming, then you'll have gained a brother or sister in Christ. So keep sharing. Keep showing them the love of Christ. Keep praying that they will confess the Lord Jesus before they are face to face with him. Now certainly our, evangel our evangelistic mindset is part of what we should get from this text. So I've brought that out. But that's not actually the main point of this text at all. The main point of this text is that Jesus is exalted above all others. That's why all will authentically worship Jesus. It's because Jesus is exalted above all others. He has the name above all other names. And there will come a day when all will worship him as such. But the point today is not that we would look forward to that coming day of universal worship, but that we would worship him today. That we would treasure Christ Jesus as supreme in our lives today. We are so easily distracted, aren't we? There are worries of the week going through our minds right now. Things I have to prepare for tomorrow. Things that I know are coming Tuesday and Wednesday. And before you know it, it's going to be Sunday again. Where's the time go, right? The point is that we would worship Jesus as supreme in our lives every moment of the day. That doesn't mean we stop doing our regular life, okay? We still have to go to work. We still have to take care of the house. Whatever it is we're doing, we still have life. But we can put Jesus at the forefront of our life in those things. This ancient first century hymn to Christ was given to us that we might intensify our worship of Jesus now. For those of us who have confessed Jesus, 
we can do that. But if you're here today and you have not ever confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have never believed on Jesus as the only way to have your sins forgiven and be made righteous, Jesus is the only way to have our sins forgiven and be made righteous. If you have never put your faith in him for your salvation, do it today. In fact, just, just tell him, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I know I've sinned against you. Please be my savior. Ask him for his forgiveness. Ask for new life. And then tell someone, tell me, so I can walk you through this new Christian life. Our life is to be revolved around Jesus, worshiping him day in and day out, making this time of gathering on Sunday morning even more special as we have been worshiping him and we gather together and that worship increases. Lord, I pray that your name be honored above all. I ask, Lord, that Jesus would be glorified in my life every moment of every day. I pray that for your children in this room that Jesus would be exalted and honored in their lives each and every moment of the day. And for those here who have not received the Savior, that you would open their eyes, help them to believe, so that they might respond, turning from their sin, receiving Jesus as their Savior, and that they too might put Jesus at the center of their life each and every moment of the day. Father, we thank you for your son. We ask that you would help us to live lives that reflect his goodness. We know that that will honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.